going to 2 Kings chapter 4. If you haven't already, please share the feed so that other people can be encouraged by the word of God, which is so needed right now during our time. 2 Kings chapter number 4, I'm beginning in verse number 1. It says, A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. And then he said, go borrow vessels from everyone, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, then pour it into all the vessels and set the full ones aside. So when, so she went from him and she shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God, he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debt and you and your sons shall live off the rest. Today I want to minister to you about how to get up when you are down, how to get up when you are down. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister by your power and by your grace? Would you speak a word to the hearts of your people that would encourage them and help them to be more like Jesus? In his name I pray and everybody said... Amen, amen. When the Lord put this message on my heart, I immediately thought of Rocky V and the scene with Tommy Gunn. And for those of you that are not avid Rocky fans like I am, Tommy Gunn was supposed to be Rocky's protege. He was the one who, in Rocky's old age, he was going to train to be the next prize fighter. He originally didn't want to train Tommy Gunn, but he convinced him to train him. And, and then he kind of took him underneath his wing, and Tommy Gunn became another son to him. Uh, he spent a lot of time with him. He even neglected his family to train Tommy Gunn. He had him over the house for all sorts of holidays. He even gave him the little boxing gloves, the gold chain of boxing gloves that his famous trainer Mick had given him. And so he was really, really tight with him. But as the movie goes on, we find that Tommy Gunn was not able to resist the allure of the Don King-like promoter whose name was Duke Washington. And uh, this guy wanted to get Tommy Gunn to fight with Rocky because he thought he could make a big payday. And so he kept trying to pull Tommy Gunn on the side and, you know, tell him, you know, you got to fight Rocky and I can do this for you and I can do that for you and all these things. And, and so finally there's a rift between Tommy and Rocky and through a series of events, Tommy finally gets Rocky to fight him on the streets. And so at the beginning, Rocky really lumps him up and he knocks him down and he, he doesn't want to, you know, really hurt him. So he turns his back on him and he, and he walks away and right when he's got his back turned to him, Tommy Gunn pops up and he, he attacks Rocky from the back and he gives Rocky a good beat and it looks like Rocky is just kind of left for dead on the ground. But in typical Rocky fashion, Rocky finds his way to his feet after he was knocked down. He said, yo, Tommy, I didn't hear no bell. One more round. 
And then he goes ahead and he, he goes straight on him. I mean, he doesn't fight him. He doesn't box him. But what he does, he does all sorts of moves that he learned when he was on the street collecting for somebody when other people didn't pay their bills. And so, you know, he elbows him in the back. He, he gives him, you know, chokeholds. He, he trips him. He does all these kind of street fights uh, moves. And when I thought of this, I thought that scene really mimics life. Because sometimes life sucker punches us from the least expected places. For Rocky, it was somebody who had brought into his home and embraced his family. But for some of you, it's a job loss. It's a sickness. It's the sudden death of a loved one. It's an unfaithful spouse. It's a divorce. It's a, it's a fight with a, with a friend. It's a dream that goes up in smoke. And the list goes on and on and on. The unexpected stuff pops up. And the enemy is a lot like Tommy Gunn because he doesn't fight fair. He, he doesn't have any heart. He doesn't have any, any rules. And he comes to steal, kill, and destroy our destiny. And, and so what I've learned is sometimes you've got to go street on the enemy. Sometimes what you've got to do is you've got to, you know, hit them with elbows and trip moves and because it's a fight of faith. But the street that I'm talking about going on the enemy is the streets of gold on the enemy. We've got to fight the enemy heaven's way. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse number three says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. Our street fight weapons are mighty, and they have the ability to cause us to get back up when life knocks us down so that we can look at the devil and say, yo, I didn't hear no bell one more round. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. One more round. I still have breath, and I still got fight on the inside of me. One more round. I've been knocked down, but there's something that's pulling me up. One more round. We've got to remember that God's power and God's weapons have the ability to get us up. Enter the story. Second Kings chapter number four. Here we find a brand new widow. Husband has just died. He was a good man. He was a godly man. Matter of fact, he was one of Elijah's servants, a spiritual son to Elijah, one of the ones who went to and graduated from the school of the prophets. He was one of the 7,000 who God had reserved as a remnant who had not bowed his knees to the prophet uh, Abel. He was part of that remnant. He was a good father. He was a good husband. And I just want you to know that the truth of the matter is sometimes bad things do happen to good people. But what happens sometimes when bad things happen to good people is the enemy will shower you with shame. The enemy will make you believe that you are to blame for the bad things that sometimes happen to good people. And when you let shame get involved, he ruins your game. He keeps you bound. He'll use shame to try to get you to be permanently lame in your life. And I want to remind you that even when bad things happen to good people, there is still no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So here we have this woman, our husband, a prophet, a good man. A faithful servant dies and he leaves her with more debt than he's worth. More than likely, this wasn't debt created by frivolous decisions. 
This was probably debt created because to be a prophet in Bible times at this particular time, under the rule of Queen Jezebel and Ahab, there was persecution against the prophets. So it was probably hard for him because of the persecution to provide for his family. And so he's dead and he leaves her without any life insurance, no nest egg to live on. Her debt is so much that in order to pay off her creditors, they are coming to take her sons as slaves. Her life as she knew it, has been turned upside down. She's been knocked down. Her world has been blown up. Her security has gone up in smoke. Her world has been rocked. And now the only comfort she has, her two kids, the creditors are coming to take them away from her. How do you get up when life knocks you down? This is not my message, but I want to encourage somebody and let you know that when you're down to nothing, God is always up to something. I want to say it again. When you are down to nothing, God is always up to something. As you contemplate that truth, let's attack this. Let's see. How do you get up when life knocks you down? Number one, the first thing you have to remember is don't give up your ask. It seems bizarre to me that Elisha goes to this woman. He sees the plight of the woman. He hears what she has to say. And here's what he says, verse number two. What shall I do for you? And if I was the woman, I'd be like, what should you do for me? Hello, McFly. What do you mean, what should you do for me? Did you not hear what I just said? Do you not see the circumstances around me? Great seer, great prophet, great man of God. What do you mean, what should you do for me? My husband is dead. I got more debt than I can pay. They're coming to take my kids. What do you mean, what shall you do? Seems insensitive. To ask a question like that at such a time of need, it's however akin to the same question that Jesus asked a man at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. He looked at the man who was crippled, paralyzed, laying there for 38 years, and he says, do you still want to be made whole? Both questions seem so insensitive. But the questions are not intended to elicit a specific answer, but rather they are a request to pull the person steeped in the problem back on the path of faith. What do you mean, Pastor? I mean when you're knocked down as far as this woman was knocked down. When life happens to you at this magnitude, something happens to your ask. The enemy comes and he tries to steal your faith. He tries to jam your signal so you cannot reach the Savior. He tries to get you to a place where you're in such a sad space that you start telling yourself, why ask God for any help? If God really cared, why would I be in this mess? If God really saw saw what was happening, why would he allow this to happen? What good is it to ask God to come to my rescue? Look at what's already going on in my life. The enemy comes to steal our ask. But Elijah begins the process of pulling this dear woman up by assisting her in getting her ask back. I want to remind you of the words of Jesus, especially those of you who are down right now. Matthew 7, ask and it will be given you. John chapter 14. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Psalm chapter 2 verse number 8. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You may feel like the enemy has kicked your ask, but God is coming to give you your ask back. Never 
on your ask. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord. He wants to help. Second thing we see, number two, get a word and follow it. Notice that the next thing Elijah does after he gives her her ask back is he gives her an instruction to follow. Many times when we ask God for intervention, the miracle of getting up begins with an instruction. Moses, stretch out your rod, then the Red Sea parts. Joshua, march around the city of Jericho seven times, then the walls fall. Name and go dip in the Jordan River seven times. Then the leprosy leaves. Blind man who has mud on your eyes, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Then the eyes are open. Lame man carried by his four friends, pick up your mat and go home. Then the lame man is healed. Lepers, go show yourself to the priest with the gift that Moses commanded. Then the leprosy leaves. Widow woman who, whose husband was my spiritual son. And whose sons are about to be taken by you from, from you by the creditors. Go borrow some empty vessels from all of your neighbors. What's happening? Most miracles begin with an instruction. When you are down and God wants to get you up, the first thing that he will do is through the Holy Spirit give you your ass back. But then he'll give you an instruction to follow. Both are part of the process in assisting you to step out in faith. Both are part of the process of how God helps us to keep the switch of faith turned on so God can turn our situation around. When you ask, God will give you a word and an instruction to follow. You've got to walk it out in order to watch him work. In order to see God work, you've got to walk it out in your life. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. What is faith? It's walking out the instruction of God in your life. And oftentimes the reason why God will give us an instruction to follow when we're knocked down is so that we could focus on a promise instead of focusing on the problem because wherever you focus, where the focus goes, the power flows. And so oftentimes in life, what happens to us is when we're down, we're focusing on everything that's wrong. So God will give us an instruction and it's part of the faith process to keep our eyes off of the problem. But then number three, you need to stop worrying about what other people think. You know, this is a big one. So many people get hung up in life because they are so concerned about what other people think. Notice in verse number three, then he said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels, do not gather just a few. Go borrow, go borrow. Go borrow. I'm in such deep debt up to my highballs, and your solution, man of God, is for me to borrow more. Sometimes the walk of faith will cause situations to get worse before they get better. Go borrow. Go borrow from all your neighbors. I'm sure the neighbors all knew her plight. And probably you had those who were heartbroken for her, but those that were talking about her. Some were saying, we knew, we need to do what we can to hurt, to help Gertrude. I mean, this woman, look at her. She's such a good woman. Look at all that's going on. Let's bake her a pie. Let's, let's take up a collection to help her pay her groceries. There were those who wanted to help. Because when you're down there, always those who will empathize. But then there were probably other neighbors. The ones that love to talk about people who got problems as though their life is 
perfect. And can I just be honest with you for a minute? These people make me sick. Because none of our lives are perfect enough to stand in the judgment seat when other people got problems and issues as to talk some kind of way about them as though it wouldn't have happened to us. And so, you know, you got these other neighbors. Girl, did you see what happened to Gertrude? Her husband spent all his time being a minister. And because he was a minister, he couldn't provide for his family. He should have known that job was a dead-end job. Look at my husband. My husband, I mean, he's always provided. My husband, if he were to die today, we'd be all right. Everything would be good. But look at him. He wasn't a good man. He was a deadbeat because look how he left his family. I'm talking about those pious people. They act righteous. They, they carry themselves as saints, but really they're, they're cooperating with Satan when they say stuff like that. But Elijah says, go borrow some empty vessels from your neighbors. She had a choice. Obey the instruction, which had to mean, don't worry about what other people think. Don't let what other people may think as you follow the instruction stop you from getting back up. Don't let them block your miracle. Don't worry about them. Focus on God. She sent her boys over to the neighbor's houses. Can you see with me right now? Yeah. Um, uh, can, can we go rummaging through your recycle bin? Yeah. Mama, Mama sent us over here. We got to get some, some, some empty jars. Um, that's, that's okay. You don't, you don't have to go and get them from the house. But if you wouldn't mind, if you see us at the end of the driveway, just, just rummaging through your, your, your empty recycle bin. Just don't, don't pay us any mind. Can, can you see it with me? They go to one house. Oh, that, that'll be a good one. That, that's, that's a big one right there. Let me, let me bring that one home to mama. That'll be a good one. Oh, that's small, but that'll do too. And that's a little bit bigger. We got to get that. Can you see it? They go to the next neighbor's house. Um, just, just want to let you know, um, we're going to be going to the bottom of the driveway. We're just going to get some, you know, I know you get five cents for those, but, but if you could just spare the f- five cents, we, we just got to get some, some, some empty bottles. Can you see it with me now? Mama sent us over here. Mama said, we got to, that one's a 10 center. That one's cracked, but it'll do. Can't can see it with me. And then after they go to all the people's houses, can't see it with me right now. Coming home. Getting to Mama's house. Mama, here. We got you some empty vessels. Can you, can you imagine what the neighbors were saying? Did you see Gertrude's boys? They got so low. They're, they're picking out of the garbage. I don't know who this is for, but you need to understand, don't worry about what anybody else is thinking. It's a distraction to keep you down. Here come the boys, and they got these big garbage bags full of empty bottles. And here's what God wants us to know. Here's the picture God wants us to see as you see the boys carrying the bottles in a trash bag that God can turn anybody's trash into treasure. When his grace touches your garbage, God will turn the garbage the devil sent into your life into a gift that will get you back on your feet because God turns trash in the trials. I want you to know God 
recycles. It's the kind of God that we serve. Don't worry about what other people think. Then they get home. And, and did you notice the instruction? Shut the door. Shut the door. In the middle of your miracle, you need to make sure that you shut the door on the enemy. Too many people miss their miracle because in the middle of God doing something, the door to the enemy remains open. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 27 says, neither give place to the devil. This literally means do not give any territory or access to the devil. Don't leave the door open for the devil in your life. One version says, don't give him a foothold. Why? When you leave that door open, it either slows down, stops, or steals the miracle that God has for you. And so when you are down, what you need to do is make sure if you know that there's a door open. And if you don't know there's a door open, there's no door open. But if you know there's a door open, shut it. Shut the door on bitterness. Shut the door on getting even. Shut the door on unforgiveness. Shut the door on sinful habits. Shut the door. It will slow down what God has for you. Matter of fact, the word devil comes from the Greek Greek word diabolos. It's a compound Greek word. It's used 61 times in the New Testament. And the first part of the word dia, second part, uh, balos. But dia carries the idea of penetration. And what the enemy or what God is trying to tell us is the enemy is always looking for an opportunity to penetrate our lives. And the only way that he can do that is if we keep the door open. What is our responsibility? Shut the door. When I thought about this, I thought of the Jeffersons. Anybody remember the Jeffersons growing up? Remember George Jefferson? I loved him. Hysterical. And he'd go over to his apartment door. He'd hear the knock, you know. He opened it up. If it was Bentley, he just shut the door and walk away. Remember that? He slammed the door right in his face. You know what God is saying to us? Slam the door in the enemy's face. Shut all the open doors so that God can bring the miracle that he wants in your life into your life. Number five, get excited about experiencing emptiness. Notice. Elijah said, borrow some empty vessels. She told him, she said, I got nothing. Except a little jar of oil. And he said, go borrow some empty vessels from all your neighbors. And when the vessels are in your house, shut the door. And Elijah says, take the jar that you have, your last bit of oil. And I want you to empty your last bit into one of the other vessels. I have nothing except an empty jar. Go borrow some empty vessels. Take the little you have and empty it. There is a theme that is emerging in the story about emptiness. Emptiness is often an unenviable position. Nobody wants to be empty. Nobody wants an empty bank account. Nobody wants an empty fridge or pantry. Nobody wants empty ambition. Nobody wants an empty marriage. Nobody wants to have an empty gas tank. Empty is unenviable. Nobody tries to wind up on empty. Matter of fact, just the opposite. We always try to wind up on full. And if you read the scriptures, the scripture would support the fact that 
God wants us to end up, end up on full. I could go through all the scriptures. He wants our cup to be overflowing. He wants to give us good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. He wants us full of joy and full of peace and full of his power and full of the Holy Spirit. But I found out that in order to get full of the right stuff, sometimes we've got to empty ourselves of the wrong stuff. I found out that empty is not always a bad place to be because the hard part's already over. What's the hard part? The hard part is for us to allow God to take away all the bad stuff. All the stuff that shouldn't, that's the hard part. It's easy for God to put the new stuff in. It's hard for him to make room in our lives for what he wants to do. So I want to give you a new perspective on empty. Instead of looking at empty as an unenviable position to be in, I want you to see empty as the initial stage of flow. I want you to see empty as God getting rid of what you don't need so that he can fill you with everything that is excellent. I want you to see empty as the perfect condition for God to fill you up. So instead of empty keeping you down, I want you to set your expectation for absolute fullness because when you're empty, it is the backdrop of God filling you up. Get excited about your emptiness. And number six. Pour it out. Notice verse 4. When you have come, this is when you're down. How do you get up? And when you have come in, shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour it into all those vessels and set them aside. Set the full ones aside. So she went from him and she shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured out. She shut, she poured. She shut, she poured. She shut, she poured. You know what this tells me? that a lot of people can help you to get to a certain place. But if you are going to get up when you're down, ultimately you and God have got to do it. Other people can't do it for you. Her sons, they went, they got the empty vessels. But she had to go shut the door and she had to be the one to pour. Can you imagine how difficult it was for her to pour out the last bit of oil she had? I mean, think about it this way. All of what she had was empty except one little bottle. This is what she knew she had. She could at least do something good with that. And God said, "Mm -mm. take the little you got. Pour it out. For us, what is this? This is you and me in the middle of being down, being able to pour out the one thing that life or People or circumstances or the enemy cannot take from us unless we allow it to be taken from us and that is our praise. In the middle of your problem, God is saying to you, you've got to be willing to pour out that little bit of praise that you've got left on the inside of you because when you pour, God's power shows up in your life. The power is always in the poor and it's hard. To pour when you're surrounded by problems. Because when you're surrounded by problems, you don't feel like pouring out your praise. When you're surrounded by situations, you don't feel like it. But that's when you got to step out and say, God, even in the middle 
of this problem, this situation. I'm going to give you the little bit that I got, got left. And when she began to pour out that little bit, one bottle after another bottle began to fill up another and another and another. It came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. He said to her, there's not another vessel. So the oil ceased. When did the oil stop? When all the vessels collected were full. What's the message? Don't you dare limit your big God with your small expectations. So many, what if they had more vessels? They would have gotten more oil. God did not determine the size of the miracle. Their readiness, their expectation of their big God was what determined the size of the miracle. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. But we've got to be willing to pour. How do we pour? Keep pouring. Don't stop pouring just because it gets a little better. Don't stop pouring. Just because you don't need God as much, don't stop pouring. Just because you can't see your way out, don't stop pouring. When you pour, God's power shows up. Lastly, number seven, how do you get up when you're down? You got to come in a certain name. I want you to notice that when the widow woman came to Elisha, here's what she said. She said, my husband, your servant. And you know he was a good man. And you know he worshiped the Lord. And you know he honored the Lord. She didn't go to Elisha in her own name. She went to Elijah in the name of the person that she was the bride to. In the story, Elisha represents the father. The widow woman's husband represents Jesus. The woman represents us, and the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And here's the greatest thing that I could tell you. When you are down, let me remind you to come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of trouble. And the reason you can come boldly and find mercy and grace is because you are the bride to the biggest name in heaven and in earth, and his name is Jesus. And just like the man got a lie attention when you go to the Father in the name of Jesus you get heaven's attention that is the biggest name it's the name that the scripture says every knee will bow to it's the name that causes heaven to stand to attention it's the name that moves the Father into action it's the name that releases the power of the Holy Ghost it's the name that causes demons to tremble, it's the name that causes the devils to flee it's the name that puts angels Angels on assignment. You are the bride to the biggest name in heaven and in earth. And when you're down, use his name. And I promise you, I promise you, God will lift you up. Pastor, I'm down. How do I get up? Go to this story. Let God minister to you. Let him speak to your heart. Let him pull you up. Down is not a permanent position. The good thing about down is you got no further to go. There's only one way to go when you're down. And that's up. And I know so many right now because problems are lasting. 
things, things looked like they were getting better. And now they seem to be going backwards. And people are feeling down. But I want you to know we have a power to get back up and stay up, and that's Jesus. And maybe you're watching today. And maybe you have never committed your life to Jesus Christ. You've never surrendered to him. When you call his name, he'll save your soul. If I'm talking to you, if you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit on your heart, right where you are, say this prayer. Heavenly Father, today, forgive me. I repent of my sins, and I put my faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I call on his name to save my soul. I'll never be the same in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, I want to welcome you into the family of God. I want to encourage you. There's a little button on the screen. If you're watching church online, raise my hand. Click it so we can reach out to you. Write in the chat. If you're not on church online or you don't see it, the Lord Jesus will reach out to you. We want to help you in your journey with the Lord. I want you to know God loves you more than you'll ever, ever know. And he, more than anyone, wants you to get up when you're down.